Have you ever managed your own media campaign? You know, spent money on some kind of advertising for your business to get new customers or to sell a product? The barriers to entry are lower than ever. Meta company via Facebook and Instagram make it a low lift to spend money these days on the platform. Of course, there's TikTok and LinkedIn and YouTube and all the others. But while paid media buying is simple, it's not always easy to see results. To buy media at a high level, spending thousands, even millions of dollars a month for clients requires a rare skill set of strategy, analytics, marketing savvy, and intuition. This is a must-listen episode for anyone who's spending any kind of money to promote their products or services. Austin is one of the best in the brand strategy and media buying game today, and will take you to school in everything you probably don't know about media and advertising. Here we go. Yeah, and I guess my point is if people can leave three to $600 on the table because of a miss some problem putting in a code or not even a problem in their outside of their control in their control they either forgot or just didn't do it then we can assume that there's at least that much error if you're my influencer and you have a specific code and you're on a site and your your people are coming to buy my stuff with your code of course at least 15% of people are not going to put the code even though you may have 100% been the reason they got there this episode is brought to you by WeWork. Don't just work from anywhere. Your working week deserves a little luxury, like beautiful spaces to spark ideas in person, designed carefully for collaboration and peaceful nooks with uh, focus mode and awesome Wi-Fi. I love WeWork because I'm surrounded by like-minded people. It's a great place to hang out, network, or make good friends. They're even dog-friendly. Whether you're a solo entrepreneur, or you bring your entire team, yes, your entire team, uh, there's a place in a space for you at WeWork. Are you inspired by where you work? Check out WeWork, because now you can unlock productive, flexible workspaces in over 180 locations near you, especially if you use the WeWork All Access Basic. Get 30% off your first five months by using code BRIANAA30, that's B-R-Y-A-N-A-A-3-0, or to redeem the offer, just go to we.co forward slash behind the brand. This episode is brought to you by my brand new, absolutely free VIP list. Want to get a short note from me each week with what I've learned from interviewing some of the smartest people in the world, the best inspiration, education, access to my private events, special perks, unique finds, free stuff, and a lot more to help you improve your life and business. Get on the list. Just go to behindthebrand.tv forward slash VIP. It's an email newsletter. It's as easy as that. One, two, three, VIP. Behindthebrand.tv forward slash VIP and get on the list. Hi, my name is Austin Elliott and I am a creative and brand strategist slash most recently marketing consultant and you're on Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the show. Austin, welcome. Thank you feel like a longtime member, but really just been lurking <laughs> behind the scenes. Um, for those people who don't know the context, yes, we are related. Uh, and you're my son. And I couldn't be more uh, happy to have you on to chat because we a lot of people don't know that we actually do a lot of side conversations, talking all the time. Seems like these days I'm asking you more for advice uh, and your opinion. So that's so why I wanted to have you on the show. I guess where I want to start is uh, maybe the 
question I ask a lot of people is how did you get this job? Let's, let's start there and we'll roll back the clock a little bit for those who don't know. Yeah, sure. Uh, so current, current job, I work as a, like I said before, kind of a marketing advertising consultant, um, started my own business, but that's just a, you know, maybe that's a common trope. Everyone starts a business, uh, but really been working for myself, um, as a consultant the last two years. Um, I got here because I was, uh, you know, I have a traditional background in marketing and advertising for, for most. So started at agencies, uh, small and large, uh, some smaller with a digital focus out in Utah that kind of gave me my start. And then over at Crispin Porter, Bogusky out in Colorado, which would, which I would consider big and kind of traditional advertising. Um, and then most recently was at Activision Blizzard, uh, on the client side, right. Working in brand as brand, uh, manager for, for call of duty competitive, um, how I got here, uh, was by choice, uh, left that job voluntarily to strike out on my own, try and earn some new business, try and work for myself, provide value, um, and really pursue projects that I'm really passionate about, um, in spaces I'm passionate about. Um, but more importantly, try and control, have greater control over my schedule, my day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is a brand strategist? Let's start there. Yeah, sure. So, th- so there's lots of definitions, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, um, because it is such a vague kind of marketing title. However, uh, a brand strategist, in my opinion, is someone that can drive the positioning uh, of a particular brand, translate that uh, across omni-channel strategy, meaning it becomes manifest and made manifest through your creative through every way that your brand interacts with your customer marketing or otherwise, um, and leads the charge there, defines how we should be perceived, um, and is responsible for all of the research and development of what goes into that strategy, that approach. Okay. And so then media buyer. So those two things go hand in hand, but not always, right? Like I think you're, Skill set is kind of unique where you have the brand strategy perspective and the media buying skills. And again, those two things are not always mutually exclusive. It's sort of a special, maybe even call it, you know, like you're like one of these unicorns, very unique, rare beasts, you know? So what is media buying and, and how, what do you do? Well, first of all, thanks. That, that's nice to say. Um, well, look, I think. If you're, you know, you work in the industry and you get exposed to strategists, whether they call themselves a creative strategist, a brand strategist, a marketing strategist, all of them do what I described uh, to varying degrees. However, a lot of them have what I would call a certain flavor, uh, which is a lot of people talk about like the the kind of the T in a in a job or in a career. You 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 establish a lot of experience horizontally, and then you'll kind of drill down into areas of expertise. Mine happens to be in media. That's where I got my start. Um, I'm naturally passionate about data analytics, the why, which I know you and I share some common, uh, kind of mentors and pseudo mentors in in this industry, Simon Sinek being, being one of them for me, um, the why, and and for me, I've been able to find the why a lot of times in data and in analytics, and I'm obviously passionate about research. So that naturally led me to media planning and buying. I have a lot of natural skills that I think, um, have, led to great success there. But that also was my first agency job. Um, <laughs> I went, uh, and I, it's a short story, but the, the quick story is when I went to 
have a conversation um, with my first boss uh, at, a, at an agency. I was going in there expecting, trying to get a brand strategy job. And he was like, I love you and I love that, but we need a media buyer. You think you could do that? <clears throat> I was like, yeah. And he kind of gave me the pitch. He's like, look, media buying and planning would be a great tool to have as a strategist. Why don't you learn it? Um, so I did that. I had great mentors along the way who, you know, had different passions. One of them was a statistician by trade, you know, that rubbed off a bit. Anyway, I find that media helps me as a strategist because I truly understand how the execution is operated and some of the details of the execution that may go overlooked or un underappreciated when you're writing a strategy or when you're creating a creative brief or you're creating a concept or a campaign idea exactly the audience it goes to and how it gets to them is a kind of critical piece of that. Um, and so, yeah, I've been able to leverage that experience to make me a better strategist and vice versa. The strategy helps a lot when actually doing buying as well. All right. So let's unpack that a little bit more. Cause I, you know, this, again, our side conversations, I'm fascinated with how this works. It's still for me, very mysterious um, and ominous sometimes, but like, okay, so uh, let's see if I'm on the client side, um, how should I be looking at a media buy? Like, what should I be measuring? How should I be tracking it? And then let's talk about platforms. So let's, how do we get started? Sure. Yeah. It, and unfortunately, at all the time, it's going to be, it depends. Um, yeah. Depends on the client, right? I, I'm not going to give the same advice I, I, I would to Activision Blizzard than I would to a budding e-commerce brand, right? On how they should look at their media buy. Okay, hold on. Let me give you a case study then. All right. So uh, we we are an established, still kind of new though, but we're established, uh, let's say supplement brand. And uh, we are trying to be the number one in our category. We're high end. Um, we're doing really well. And we want to do even better. Let's take that supplement brand as a case study. Sure. And doing really well, meaning you're probably doing your, your 10 to 20 million a year-ish? Yeah, sure. Sure. So I think- That's a good place to start. From yeah. the very beginning to unpack where I would begin, uh, considering how to promote my- brand in, in digital media. At first, I kind of break it down by, by three types of objective. I've got a business objective in mind, which is my overarching objective that I consider first, which may be I'm the CEO. I want to raise revenue by 10%. That's my business objective. Or I want to get venture capital funding by the end of 2025. And therefore I need to prove the viability of my business to that group. That is my business goal. Whatever the overarching business goal, yeah. typically tied to revenue or getting distribu major distribution or funding, right? Let's assume the distribution is DTC. Um, and let's say that up to now, we've been killing it just with organic growth and some help from, let's say, influencers. You know, we have some uh, key influencers or help blowing the brand up, but now we want to do some dedicated paid media to continue to drive revenue. Yeah. Sure. To continue then, to drive Some of the things revenue. I would consider first off, well, I guess first off, my, uh, there's a saying that I think you actually taught me, and it's better probably in Japanese, but it's, there are many ways to the top of the mountain. What's that phrase? Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't remember it in Japanese exactly, but yeah, there there are many paths up to the top of the mountain. <laughs> yeah. And I truly believe that, right? I don't think there is one playbook, right, to, to get to the top of mountain for a supplement brand that's doing great organically with influencers. But one thing I would consider is what is what would paid media really do for you? Right. That's the next tier, which I would consider 
probably more in terms of what's my communication objective. Because at the end of the day, paid media is communication. So what's the problem? Why aren't you doing better than you are today? Is it an awareness problem only, right? People don't know about us. If they did, they'd buy it. Simple. They'd have one strategy for that. Well, maybe we have hero products and those do really well, but we have, we have these new products that we want to introduce, or maybe there's an awareness problem, like as to your point, or maybe they're fringe products uh, that aren't as popular as the hero products and we want to boost those up. Yeah. Yeah. Therefore we could ask, you know, if it's just awareness, it's really simple from a media perspective because you're just defining an audience and, and trying to share that awareness, make your, you're creating KPIs or key performance indicators around their ability to understand what you're selling. You're just creating awareness. Again, it's awareness, ad recall, um, and overall kind of familiarity. But, but oftentimes a communication objective is more complicated. It's not just awareness. Uh, oftentimes it's perception. And I would challenge that most often the most important communicative communication objective is more education, perception, and relationship than anything else. <clears throat> so how do you really accomplish those objectives? How do you change the perception of your brand in someone's eyes? So for example, I'm familiar with your hero product. I view this side product and maybe my, the general consensus is that it's, it's not for me. Um, or like, oh, I don't suffer from whatever that is solving. I don't have that problem. Therefore, I don't need the solution. How do we change that perception um, in the consumer's, consumer's mind? That's the goal, right? We got to establish that communication goal separate from the business goal. The business goal is sell more of product X because product A does really well. Then why, you know, let's figure out why aren't we selling more product X that can help something I do again, help these um, CMOs as marketing directors understand and come up with these objectives for themselves because the media strategy, which we're getting down to the actual execution is so dependent on those objectives or else they're in this uh, or else they, they risk feeling rogue or delivering on the wrong thing. Uh, drilling what you not really need, what you don't really need, what may look good, but it's not what you need. Yeah. So how does that work? So you could do advertising, you sort of do a shotgun blast and you shoot it out in the air and, and these pellets might hit, you know, uh, some of the target, but miss another piece of it. And then you've got this sort of wasted ad spend, right? Um, or is it more, uh, you know, Again, it goes back to, I guess it depends, but like if you're doing a more segmented, like he, we're identifying the audience who is buying it or not buying it. Is it like more single shot, like line them up, set them down or set them up, knock them down kind of stuff? Or how do you approach it? Yeah. Good question. I guess let's, let's keep using this, uh, this pretend supplement company as an example, right? <clears throat> okay. Um, they've got great organic reach right? Therefore, I would, I would imagine the content they're producing is entertaining. It's valuable. Uh, it's growing by itself. And then they've got influencer partnerships, right? Yep. That are, that is yep. their, the, those are those awareness pushers. Therefore, what even is the role of digital media, right? If it is to expand the reach, then great. What I would probably, how I'd approach it is through what's working is, is amplifying what's happening on organic, amplifying that out to like audiences, helping them grow that organic places, keep those communities active and, and living and healthy, really just additive, right? I'm not creating a new infrastructure. A new f I'm just building on what's working. Same with the influencers, right? Yeah. If, if the only, if that's working, amplify 
that. Like, digital media would amplify mm-hmm. those messages, bring them back to a community that already exists rather than trying to stand up another totally separate entity um, that that would steal from, right? What's already working with the influencers better to amplify, right? So I would be thinking first, how do I pump dollars into this to, to expand the reach, to deepen the engagement, to improve the, the experience that a normal person has um, as you engage with that content? Yeah. And what platforms are you seeing? Like, where are the best opportunities right now for value or for efficacy? Yeah. Media is one of those. uh, This is one of those careers where it's an ever-changing landscape. Um, A lot of it depends on the kind of popularity of whatever platform your audience is most part of. But, But again, so like if I'm Riddle and Brantley, a law firm, which I get for some reason, YouTube ads for all the time. Um, (laughs) uh, my audience is going to be very different than a supplement company who's targeting, you know, 18 to 24 year olds. Uh, My approach would be different. Right. And, and therefore I think should be. So to me, platforms are a tool to use to number one, get the audience you're looking for, which I think is a very traditional way of looking at it. Yeah. And the co- like cost versus audience exposure. That's very traditional when it comes to like TV, radio, even like magazine, that kind of stuff. But I also think what's new and a lot of marketers talk about is, is it a proper vehicle for the content that you're creating? So for example, if your influencer content is the way forward, you're loving it. There are certain platforms that are better tailored to, to expand or amplify influencer related things. So like TikTok snippets, YouTube shorts, YouTube videos, even uh, little Instagram videos that are under two minutes work really, really well to amplify influencer content on podcasts, short videos, interviews do extremely, extremely well, but I probably wouldn't use Twitter or programmatic buying to do that or an Mm -hmm. OTV online television buy to promote an influencer content. That just doesn't make sense, right? So I I would choose the platform based off of kind of the creative strategy, the the approach. Yeah. Uh, Can you? Can you kind of explain or um, maybe let's talk about UGC. So like there's these people who are not official influencers that are not on the payroll. No one's asked them to do anything, but here they are popping up advertising or promoting the brand saying, Hey, I love this. You know, I see it a lot for um, this AG one drink that I drink, this green drink. It's right. You left some in my fridge. Yeah. Um, And so it's like, wow, they have like hundreds, even thousands of influencers out there creating this user-generated content, UGC. What's the opportunity for a brand? Like, how do you find those? And then how do you, how do you uh, promote them, pump them? Uh, what I'm seeing more and more is an oversaturation of really bad UGC uh, recently. And this is just my perspective because I work on a lot of e-commerce brands right now. And everyone knows that UGC is a like very important part of a content mix. But what I'm seeing more and more of, unfortunately, are these, you know, small companies that are, that are, they do exclusively provide UGC uh, production. They'll like source people. But at the end of the day, these are people creating very low quality, very like no personalization, very generic video. The only difference between the hundred UGC video variations that I'm seeing for a brand is like the TikTok sound they use in the background or the AI or the AI voice they're using to, to dub their, you know, it's not, it's very impersonal. I think the video is getting better quality. Everyone understands the shots, right? There's almost a formula to UGC now that's oversaturating the market. It's like, show my product, show me pouring it out, show it in my hand, a shot of me 
eating it and a shot of me leaving the house or walking through the house or whatever, me smiling, that's a formula. It's a template and it's getting oversaturated. And I think the way forward, if I'm consulting on UGC or how to produce a type of content, I can't overemphasize enough the the personality is key to UGC. You've got to show an individual, a person. It's got to feel like a person, not like a, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. And I see a lot of these uh, get ready with me videos, right? Where, you know, she's either putting on her makeup while she's talking as if to like distract us from the actual message. But yeah, that's becoming so formulaic now that we sort of see through. It's not authentic. Well, let me ask you this about, well, just quickly, just to end on this, an, an example of this, we see it and it still works somehow. All these car commercials, right? I, you know, it shows Stacy in her car. This is obviously a paid actor. It says at the bottom of the screen, like Stacy is an actor, right? But she's going through as if it's UGC, right? I'm here with my family, here are my kids. And it's like extra ABC that are kids from the talent agency. You know, it still works. These big brands do it all the time. They cast people to act like individuals shooting home content. Um, but I think a lot of time it falls flat if it's not personal, if it's not relevant. Yeah. It's interesting because it's sort of come full circle, right? There's been, there was this arc where there's like overproduced TV commercials and you're like, okay, you know, that's an overproduced TV commercial. <laughs> you know, they spent a lot of money on that and it's just like, you know, 15 or 30 seconds of flash. And then it's gone to casual underproduced uh, but maybe it's even now sort of jumped the shark a little bit. And like you said, it's become redundant. It's almost like, like a penny stock. It's not worth very much now because you sort of, you, you, there's so much of it oversaturated to your point. And we see the formula, huh? So, so how should we, yeah. How, what does personal look like? Is it back to like influencer marketing where it's like, Hey, I'm a real person. I know you're part of my group and community already. I know you love me. You've raised your hand to say, uh, you know, you opted into my newsletter or whatever it is, or you're in my feed. Is that what it's about? Like taking people on uh, behind the scenes or. Maybe I, I guess from my perspective, it doesn't necessarily need to be someone with an existing following though. That obviously helps right to get some initial engagement. And I would totally understand to me, UGC is slightly adjacent to influencer content. So I would consider anyone with a following, like a natural following would be like part of an influencer buy, right? You're, you're negotiating based on the terms of their, you know, they can ex expect this many likes, this many views, you know, versus just a normal average everyday person. Hey, I want to take a video. Would you send me a video of you reacting to my product? I'll send you free product. Just react to it. Um, I think what makes it good UGC, like what, what would make it stand out is that you allow the individual sh to show some individuality, right? Like get to, um, I think that we were over templatizing and over scientifying the ads, which is a classic advertising misstep, right? You, and I believe, uh, I can't remember one of, which one of the forefathers of advertising talks about this, but there is a science of advertising. We could tell you exactly when to use your brand at the, in the, in the video, right before the three second mark, we could tell you exactly how much of the screen should be copy less than 20%. That's the science of an ad, right? It needs to be less than six seconds or less, whatever, but there's also the understated, the 
creativity, the engagement of an ad, right? How engaging is this? And I think what we've overlooked is how do we incentivize or properly brief UGC to be engaging and to be authentic? It's authenticity and engagement that matters the most. The template should should promote that rather than restrict it. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I just connected with this guy named Neil Ford. Uh, and Neil is an ad industry vet uh, who's on TikTok and seeing tremendous success. You know, he's an older guy, but like, he's like the master storyteller. I don't know if you've ever seen his feed, but um, it's sort of very... Uh, branded with like this dark black background and like this Helvetica, you know, traditional sort of ad font in the background that states, you know, the is Helvetica a traditional app? Am I falling into the stereotype without even knowing it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's like very Apple-esque, but um, Neil does such a great job of storytelling. It just makes me think about, you know, bringing someone on a journey or storytelling, how, how, how cliche that is, but at the same time, how important it is and how timeless it is. It's like, yeah, don't let's not fall into templates or uh, copying someone else. We just need to be our true selves. We need to talk about real stories or real experiences. And I think that's probably the way to do UGC the best. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like any really great concept. And I took this uh, really great from um, Alex Bogusky from the agency at Crispin. We talk a lot about at the agency attention. Um, creating interest, uh, attention brief is what we, you know, they would coin it. They, they're famous for tension briefs. Um, wh- where is the tension in this problem? Because, or where is the tension? Because therein lies the problem, which also therein lies the solution. So we're talking about attention right now between obviously UGC is important. We want to hear real people share their real experiences with a product or a service. We want that. But People, when we give them that opportunity, the video or the can be re- off the rails, could be useless. Therefore, we give them a template, but then the template maybe gets over templatized. There's this tension. Um, there's a problem in there, uh, and that's what makes it really interesting: is unlocking and, and easing that tension with some of these solutions. When trying to get at what's the heart of this, it's authenticity, it's engagement. That's that's at the heart of it. So, how do you get that? And while not sacrificing too much of the template, because you need some, like if you're a marketer, you need to establish some type of continuity for what you're going to expect, right? So how do you write something that's, that's inspiring, but not too constraining? Right. And we get these from our brand partnership because, you know, this podcast has sponsors, you know, this episode brought to you by ABC brand or whatever. Uh, And we get those scripts from the brands and, Oftentimes it's just bullet points. It's not really a script. It's like, here are the key communication points that we want to get across. Like, here's what we stand for. Here's some of the features and benefits. Here's the offer. And then, you know, you get creative and you can read it however you want, make it your own. And then they'll often, well, this is actually uh, taking a few steps back. We don't even engage with partners or sponsors until we fully vet the product and like try it and test it. And some of the best partnerships I have, like one of them was with Element, you know, because you saw me drinking this up in the mountains when we were hiking. Element's this uh, electrolyte drink that saved me from getting mad headaches all the time. It like replenished me. And like, I literally discovered it, met Rob Wolf, who's like the founder, but like just fell in love with the product. And then 
afterwards said, hey, we should probably collaborate and do something. So that was a like or an organic find or even Viore. You know, I bought like a half dozen pairs of shorts and I was trying them out to see which one I like the best to go like from the pool to the gym to working in. And I found the Viore short and boom. So like those types of partnerships are the most, I don't know, uh, it seems for us the best fit because I, I find them first, but it's like, it's nice when the brand lets you make it your own and then you can sort of have a testimonial about your experience with it, how you found it, what you like about it, what you don't like about it. I think that especially works really well for influencers like yourself. And I apologize. I don't mean if you don't want to be titled as an influencer, that's fine. But someone that has a community that you influence, right? Or have the potential to influence. It's, it's even more important that you have a natural a need or, or a benefit from one of your partners. Right. Um, and that's well communicated, right? It, because that's how it makes it authentic that your community knows you, right. Knows you really well. And they're going to be able to see through if like, I'm not going to find you on here promoting Pantex anytime soon, you know, like it, it's just not going to happen. Not because you're uh, not because your community doesn't like that, but it's just because how would that help you? Like what, what's the natural, you know, um, Versus, which I think is, again, just slightly separate, um, UGC, I, I don't think necessarily like needs to match someone's life exactly. They're just looking for an authentic review um, or a narrative. So, right, if there's an authentic, a cool reason, a creative reason why a product benefit helped someone overcome something or solve the problem that's super relatable, that's what we're looking for. People are looking for, in my opinion, when I'm seeing an ad for someone I don't know and don't care about. I'm just trying to establish some relatability. Like, do I have similar problems? Do, am I, can I put myself in their shoes as a father, as a brother, as a husband, as a 30 year old, like how are we connected? And then therefore are there more connections to this brand that I can make, you know, through this video? Yeah, exactly. You know, ideally when you're picking UGC or you're picking a partner, I mean, probably the best advice is like, you just want to hold a mirror up to that person and do they reflect the other buyers, like, can you see yourself in them? Can you see your brand in them? Can you see other people in them? Can you see yourself in them? And that's the beauty of UGC is it, it, you want it in a variety. So you'd want to get a variety of people, a, a wide variety of people that look different, come from backgrounds, have different problems that your product is the hero and all their stories. But you have a diverse set of stories, which again, coming back to the communication objective, right? Uh, and, and business objective, you're going to be establishing greater reach through a more diverse set of people and stories. And also if you're talking about covering all the bases, right? Uh, you want to establish, I think actually Gary Vee talked about this at, um, at cans a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about the, one of the advantages of, of digital content, which I a hundred percent agree with, uh, which is the ability to create a massive variety of content that you're, you're, you're listening to community to see what they prefer. Um, and what they relate to. And so when you, when you produce 10 to 50 UGC videos, rather than just two with, that's an exact mirror. If you have 50 or hundred, you're going to identify to a greater degree, you know, which types of people are the most relatable, but, but also where are the middling deltas and where are your, your, uh, fringe type of audiences and, and how can you tailor content to those different parts of your very real customer base that aren't just the majority, you know? Yeah, yeah, casting a wider net, you get more data more data points. I like that. 
Uh, let's stay on uh, measuring and tracking. Okay, so we were talking off camera a little bit. Um, you know, so how I want to, how should I be talking to my partners, you know, as they're tracking what we're doing, you know, uh, engagement and, and leads and the, you know, the, the CAC conversation, walk me through how brands should look at partners and, uh, think about tracking and measuring. Yeah. It's a great question. And it's a tough problem to solve. Um, what I was talking to you through the other day is I, I, I feel fortunate to come from a more traditional background of advertising where I really appreciate old school advertising, billboards, television, radio, magazine, PR, right? These different marketing opportunities. The way that we used to measure things versus where we are today, obviously, is dramatically different. We used to rely completely on these big ad agencies or research firms to tell us what percentage of households, you know, our message brought awareness to. If you think about it, if yeah, you, Nielsen ratings. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, exactly. Nielsen. When I worked with Tyson Foods, obviously they still use Nielsen uh, across a wide variety of their their media. But at the end of the day, you know, when you if you're putting up a billboard ad, right, you're not getting direct. You, you don't know exactly what percentage of people purchased your product because of your billboard. There's just no direct connection. However, you're driving down the freeway. You don't know who's seeing it. You know, coming or going, yeah. How or how many times? There's ways to get close to that number, right? There's we could measure the amount of cars that passed it. We could measure if we do certain states versus no states, right? We placed a billboard in Arizona and we measured the lift in Arizona during the time period the billboard was up. We can get close, but it's not exact. It's never exact. Right. And the temptation with digital is that we can get it, it can be alluring. Um that it feels exact, right? We can use pixelation. We can use UTM parameters. These are, I apologize for the jargon, but a pixel is like, uh, imagine a piece of code you put on your website that communicates back to the platforms you're advertising on that tells the platform that what the people did on your site after they got there. UTM parameters do a similar thing, um, though not through code, just through your URL bars. They do a very similar thing. Um, well, and then there's tracking codes, you know, like we, we get a code from our partners sometimes, you know, use code BRYBRY, you know, and get 25% off your purchase. Exactly. Or, or the, maybe you stand up a, a landing page for your influencer, right? Hey, this is going to be your dedicated page or, Hey, this is your dedicated QR code. And we're going to look at all of our QR codes in my mind. That's not hundred percent accurate. No, never. No. Well, think about it. Like if I'm, look, I, I'm a, I would consider myself an internet savant. Okay. I'm not professional, but I was raised on YouTube and I'd spend way too much time on the internet. Um, if let's just theoretically, right. I get your ad on Instagram, right. You're promoting whatever, who, who cares? Your uh, dog saddles or something. <laughs> okay. You're promoting a newsletter. Great. There is the opportunity to get direct attribution. If I click on that, or if I view it right in a certain time frame. And then I go to that site and I follow all the steps. Theoretically, 70 to 80% of the time, you will capture that data. But there isn't outstanding, even just in that example, if I'm using an Apple device where I have disabled data sharing and personality, and, and then if I, if I choose for whatever my default is in an incognito browser, just based on my own preferences, uh, there will be a disconnect in data. And now some companies can help connect those, right? But at the end of the day, what if I saw it, loved it, went on my computer to check it out, 
there are some companies, again, that can connect, but most media traditional platforms, that would be an immediate disconnect. Or let's give another example. Let's say I pick up my iPad, which technically is under my wife's name, uh, on roaming. There's no connection. There, there, there are risks for the data connection to be imperfect. And it, it's honestly 20 to 40% of the time. Oh, okay. Okay. This is, uh, this is amazing <laughs> and terrible at the same time. Uh, because, because, uh, well, so if I'm paying to promote the newsletter on Instagram and, uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, let's, I, I spend a hundred dollars, uh, you're saying I'm only able to basically track 60 to 70% of the time. So I'm, there's like a potential loss or untrackability of, of 20 to 40%. I'm being overly skeptical for, for this, for the sake of this, uh, just discussion. Ultimately you spend a hundred dollars wherever you spend it, what you should be looking at is how many signups you're getting or sales you're getting from that, right? Regardless of platform or whatever, you put $100 in, where's the $100 coming back out? Where's the $500 coming back to you? Um, now, what, what I, I describe paid media attribution as alluring is because there is a lot more trackability. I th- there's immensely more trackability and it puts us right at our fingertips. We have Google Analytics. We have other huge companies like uh, triple whale, like wicked reports, these other kind of data aggregators that help tell you these subscriptions came from your organic Google search, or they came from your Instagram ad, or they came from your Twitter post, or they came from your influencer code, blah, blah, blah. It will give you a lot of data. All I'm saying is that to rely on that and 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 think that it's a hundred percent accurate, unfortunately is a fallacy. I, 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 there's, there's no way there's just no way. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking off camera about some of the inconsistencies we have seen. It's like, I know we drove so many leads to that offer and then it's not showing up. Like one of the partners we were working with was using Shopify. And I know for a fact, cause on our side, we had the data, but on their side, it didn't show that it was the same data. You know what I mean? So there's that that gap, that uh, discrepancy, it's super frustrating. Yeah. And I think the way, like, look, a couple of case studies, if you will, examples of this in real life. So I work with a lot of e-commerce brands and a lot of them put together really fantastic promotions for Black Friday, right? And some of them prefer to give out codes rather than have it be automatic in the cart. And let's say, so one of these brands I was selling uh, gaming computers last year, they had an amazing Black Friday deal. They're given 30% off, use code 30% off, right? What do you think the redemption, and again, all the ads are 30% off. What do you think is the redemption rate of that code? Meaning the percentage of people that got there are ready to buy a computer. They're aware of the code. It's just not automatically put in there for them. What percentage of them actually use the code? Oh, I, I have no idea. Half? <laughs> it, it was not 100. It, it ended up being about 85% of people. There are 15% of people that didn't use the code. Okay, so they just they just forgot. Well, there's got to be a bunch of reasons, but why would there's there's no reason not to? There's actually a huge incentive too. You're getting it's it's a two thousand dollar computer, getting three to six hundred dollars. Fifteen percent of people. There's human there's human reasons, human error. They forgot. You know, 
They, they assumed it was already a part of it. It was a poor communication of the actual code. Um, that was referred to them by a friend. There's a bunch of reasons. Misspell that happens. <laughs> happens to me all the time. Some people spell Brian with a with an I, so I've got to be careful. I put the right code in. You know, make it super memorable. Yeah, and I guess my point is, if people can leave three to six hundred dollars on the table because of a miss, some problem putting in a code, or not even a problem in their outside of their control, in their control, they either forgot or just didn't do it, then we can assume that there's at least that much error. If you're my influencer and you have a specific code and you're on a site and you're, you're people are coming to buy my stuff with your code. Of course, at least 15% of people are not going to put the code, even though you may have a hundred percent been the reason they got there. So I think just going into these partnerships and these mindsets, just acknowledging that there are shortcomings in the story that in the narrative that these, these data platforms tell us, we have to acknowledge the gaps, better understand the gaps, but still make informed decisions. You don't want to throw this data out the window. It's still very, very important because it's still indicative of performance, but it's not, it's not the end all be all. Yeah. How about honey? And, and, you know, you can sort of circumvent um, the traditional route, right? You know how honey works those offers. Sure. So uh, yeah, you're basically saying, imagine that the code is automatic once you but then there's still, so let's take another scenario. So let's just say, again, you're my influencer partner. Um, the code is automatic if you click the ad, right? Um, attribution works in two ways, click attribution or view attribution, right? So if I click it and then buy it, obviously it'll be connected to you, but it has to happen in a certain window and that window is shortening over time. So most platforms, it's a seven day window. So if I love what you're promoting, your newsletter, whatever, I click on it on the first day and then get to a point where I get frustrated or I just forget. I get, I have ADD. I go away. It's one week passes on my same computer. I Google you type in whatever I buy the thing. Um, there'll be no attribution back to that first ad period. However, there may still be attribution to you if the, in the honey example. Right. Um, but the other part of this outside of time frame constraints to tracking, there's also, it's kind of complicated to be honest, but, um, I, I, and look, I'm still learning. I, I'm really still learning about all the intricacies here, but there are restrictions across browsers as well. Um, so let's, again, let's try and use this honey example of, of, of data tracking. Um, if I were to search you in any way, well, let's use the, like, there's no way for you to find your if I don't know you, right, or I'm, I'm roughly aware of you, I may forget your name very easily. Even if I have clicked your ad or viewed your ad, the next day I'm going to go look at it. I'll, I'm more likely to remember the product name, right, than your name most of the time. Um, the, where the attribution is going to go then, even if there's discounts on the site, right, um, is going to go to either paid search where the ad came up in my Google feed. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's called whatever. Um, and I get the discount through that. It's just, it's increasingly difficult to connect that to you as time goes on, as devices change, as browsers change. Um, and really Apple, the, the, because Apple and, and Meta and Amazon don't play nice together, these walled gardens, there, there's not much data that can make it across. It's becoming increasingly difficult. Not to say it's impossible, but it's just, it, there are people that get lost. 
Tell me what you said again before about even if the website loads slowly. Oh yeah. Um, if I'm striking a deal with you, right. I'm, I'm the brand, uh, and I'm hiring you to sell my product. Sorry, let me get back and focus here. Hiring you to sell my product. There's so much you can control, right? How well you communicate the advantages, how engaging your content is, how, you know, salesy you are. And let's just say I click it. I love it. And, and I, as the brand have set up, uh, sorry, a customer loves it. They, they click on your ad. I, the client have set up you a special landing page, right? It's just for you. But if for some reason that landing page takes six seconds to load instead of three and a half, you're going to lose automatically. You're going to lose 20 to 30% of normal people that are just impatient with the site. Like, ah, this is taking too long. Screw it on to the next thing. And that's a normal, you talk to anyone that's like their job is web development or uh, responsible for the bounce rate on their websites. They Everyone knows there's a, there's a solid rule of thumb, especially on mobile. You need to have three to four second load times. And so if I'm the brand and, and it's 10 second load time on page or six, that's not on you, the influencer that messed up. There's a drop off at that stage in the customer journey, right? The, as the journey goes down, it, it, it changes hands, um, between you and the brand at some point. I don't know that a lot of brands know this. I think, well, speaking from, you know, like the, 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 platform side, you know, we're telling our audience about these products, whether it's Element or we've worked with Vimeo and um, several others. It's like, I don't, I don't know that the, the brand side, the client side knows these intricacies because we're, uh, sometimes I feel like we're being held a hundred percent accountable one-to-one. And I mean, this is good news for me, but it's also educational for them, right? To understand that it's just not a perfect science. Yeah. And I think, look, I think there's, I think there are some genuinely some, some marketing directors or some CMOs that, or brands that just, that don't fully understand or, or, or consider the parts in the customer journey that are inefficient or opportunities for, for break off that you are not responsible for, but to be on. And again, I'm pretty, I don't know if cynical is the right way to talk about it, but realistically, yeah, I'm incentivized to put you under more pressure as the brand hiring you, right? I want you to take full responsibility for every dollar that I'm spending through you. And I'm going to put you on blast, right? Um, I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to make it seem like it's all on you, right? To get this purchase, even if there are, and and notably some, even if there are things that I could be doing better, because we don't take into account, right? Like the quality of the product, right? Or the shipping time delays or, you know, the perception of the brand, if the CEO just said something nasty on Twitter, like you have no control, but your payment depends on that stuff. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are the exceptions. I mean, if we can get someone into the funnel and they're, you know, into purchase and then if they have a bad experience with shipping, I mean, that's out of our hands at that point. But um, yeah, it's the frustration comes in not being able to measure perfectly. uh, But what I'm hearing, and this is really refreshing actually to me to be able to help my clients and educate each other is just sort of manage expectations that, okay, there's going to be some, some loopholes. There's going to be some inaccuracies uh, together. We've got to work to see how we can accomplish their goal. And that's what it's about. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's, it really is. I would encourage anyone that's like yourself or, you know, working with brands to have a upfront conversation about what are the KPIs and, and why, and may, and maybe have some discussion around, appropriate KPIs. 
Uh, cause I think all too often it just comes down to reach and, and maybe some rev share, um, which isn't bad. It's not broken, but having a conversation around, okay, well, can I get some type of feedback on the bounce rate on the landing page you're creating for me? How many people are getting there and just immediately leaving? Are there ways that I can improve that process? Because there's a connection between your content and what you should be seeing online. So for example, if what, if the video you produce feels really disconnected from the page I get to after clicking it, you're more likely to leave immediately versus right. If there's a connection between the two, therefore there's the ability for you to improve things beyond just your control. So I really just think it's a good conversation. I would encourage you and other influencers to have with these brands around how do they plan to capture data? Are there opportunities for you to uh, influence their KPIs, right? To better prove your impact um, rather than just uh, limiting yourself to just the code alone, because oftentimes you're going to be able to go back and look and see improvements in overall site traffic, or maybe there's specific Google search trends around your name with the product. There's just lots of evidence out there for driving awareness. And, and, um, but again, ultimately it's the money in the door that matters. It's holistic sales that matters. Tracking to me is secondary. Yeah. Uh, let's stay on that for just a second. So what should I, on my side of the fence, be asking for from the client? Like, uh, am I asking for pixels or do, am I creating the pixel and giving it to them? What, what do, what's like going to help us the most? And I really, you know, you want it to be a win-win, right? Like, uh, but I also want to make sure that I'm asking for the right things. Yeah. Um, I would say, again, I would say it depends, depends on the deal, right? So there are many deals. The best deal for an influencer for you, right, would just be in exchange for uh, reach and frequency, right? You're probably not going to make the most money off of it, but it's the easiest thing to track because you can track the amount of impressions you serve, right? Almost without a doubt. You can track the impressions. And is it tracked through their website, through Google Analytics, or is it tracked through... Yeah, impressions would actually be through wherever you're putting the content. So whether it's your own channel, right? You're posting a YouTube video. You know how many views you get, right? You know how many impressions you get. And if you're promoting it in paid media, they know exactly how many impressions they serve. That's that's unquestionable, the amount of impressions, right? Yeah, so the reach, I get that. But like the trackability. The, the revenue driving aspect. What I would recommend, and this is not probably one size fits all, but the closest you can get to perfection would likely be um, on a platform where let's just say you're doing a paid media buy, right. Of your content, um, that has proper pixels placed and UTM parameters installed that are unique to your content. So a UTM parameter will, every person that clicks or, or views that link is associated back to a piece of content you promote. So having that set up is table stakes. I would also, but so, so to be clear, Am I creating that or am I asking them to create that? Again, kind of depends how you structure the deal. So if you're, whoever's buying the media should create it. So if you're buying the media yourself, you're running it through your own platform, you're boosting your own posts, you've got your own YouTube channel, whatever, you know, ads, you're running the ads, then you would create it. You'd ask them to place the pixel on their site. You'd make them aware that you're creating UTM parameters and make sure it syncs up with whatever they currently use, right? Most brands will use UTM parameters. So just make sure it follows the format of their parameters, right? It's, it's a conversation of what you'd like to do. Um, most oftentimes though, it's in the hands of whoever's buying the media. And then beyond that, right? 
what I would encourage, and again, this is probably more for larger buys if you're an influencer, not UGC. Influencer, you've got codes. Codes, great. Again, tables, I think, is a way to do it. Um, I think there's more to be said from a marketing perspective of should we do codes versus have it be automatic? Because there's going to be drop-off, like I already mentioned. 15, 20% of people will just not use it just because. Like, (laughs) they either forgot or whatever. They just didn't use it. Right. So you can either establish that like, Hey, there's going to be some error. There's going to be 10, 15% of people that don't use this. I acknowledge that. We acknowledge that. We know that client influencer. We know that right there, but I'm cool with it. Let's use the code. And then the responsibility is on you as the influencer to properly advertise that code. It's got to be, you're incentivized. It's got to be everywhere. You want people using it, right? You're going to be talking about it. You're going to be using it as the headline. It's going to be on all the display ads. It's going to be on the emails, everything. <clears throat> but if you go, and then obviously if you go automatic, it's easier that way. Um, whether you use a, a code or if you send them to a specific landing page, probably the other thing I'd recommend, and I apologize if I'm kind of hopping around here a bit, but if I was you and it was a big deal, I'd want a specific code that I could use on their regular page, but I'd also want a landing page just for me. Um, call it an orphan page, I think is what they're referred to, where it exists in isolation. You can only get there from your content. It's not naturally anywhere else. You know exactly how many people visit that site. You know exactly how many people click the call to action. How many people actually purchase all of that data should be attributed to you. Mm -hmm. And again, that's on the client's site. So they just make me like a little landing page. That is again, kind of up to your agreement. Uh, Most often though, that would be something you'd ask the client to do. It's like, Hey, can I get a custom landing page built just for me by your team? Or can I design it and then have you implement it, right? Let me do the groundwork. I'll design the page. Most often though, like if I was a brand, I'd be very open to having a template landing page where I've got five or 10 influencers and each of them have their own little landing page. It's xproduct.com forward slash Brian or forward slash Lucy, you know. We have that with eight sleep. Great. Yeah, I think that's, I think that is, again, the best, one of the best ways because again, if, if you can get the full customer funnel through your landing page alone, like wh- what room is there to question? The only, what, what, the only thing out of uh, your site then would be X percent of people that are exposed to the content and then agnostic of you, they just Google it and buy it. Right. I heard about it. Instead of going through my dedicated link, they just get there in other ways. Always a black box. There's like, show me a way to track that. There are rudimentary ways, right? Like I already mentioned, time-based, location-based, right? Like Brian did this big thing and then we saw this big spike. I do this as a consumer, like with flights, I'll, I'll like do Google flights and I'll see it promoted. And then I'll go, Oh, um, JetBlue has the better deal. And I'll just go right to JetBlue, even though it was served up to me some other way. So I, I do this hotels too. Like, you know, I think everyone does it. And, and honestly for, it depends on the product too, the, the risk of this. So if you think about it, if you're a higher price product, a, a bigger consideration, the, the higher likelihood that attribution is going to be broken. Um, well, just naturally, right? The, the time it takes, if I'm buying a computer or buying a bed, it's thousands of dollars. The the percentage of people that like see it, they they search for it one, one day, they buy it the same day. It, that percentage of people is going to be smaller than if I'm selling a, a, a supplement that's, you know, a cheap supplement, even like $15 supplement by an Amazon, right? That's the same day versus a match. Without, you might want to consider that. Do some competitive shopping, do some pricing analysis, you know, if you're a normal person same with a car you know um so anyway the 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 
reliability of that data for me decays depending on the length of the customer journey as well. What's a good like um, conversion rate? Like so again, if I'm if I'm spending a hundred dollars, let's just use round math. Uh, like cost per acquisition, cost per lead. Like, what what should I expect if I'm the client and I'm paying uh, an influencer, or if I'm doing an ad? What what's a good conversion? Yeah, <laughs> it depends. Unfortunately, uh, on we'll say for example, right? Like, obviously, if you're promoting an iPhone versus promoting something nobody's ever heard of or needs, right? Like, the, the expected return is going to be dramatically different because your content has to do so much more lifting. If you have to introduce a product that doesn't exist, has no foundation of trust, you're, you're at ground zero, right? That conversion rate is going to be way lower, right? Back to the supplement company. So, you know, I'm, I'm spending on Instagram or I'm spending on Google. Uh, look, I, and it also depends on the margin, uh, like how your, pro, how your company is actually profitable and such. And, I'm going to give you all the asterisks first, all the caveats. It totally depends on your lifetime value of the product. So for example, it's going to be way different for a supplement company versus a mattress company. Because typically, and I'm not too familiar with Eight Sleep, but typically you buy a mattress and then five, 10 years later, you buy another mattress. Five, 10 years later. But if you're a supplement, you buy one and then the next week you could buy the whole family. And then it's a subscription every month. There's a lot more potential. The, the average first purchase delta compared to lifetime value it's very, very small compared to a mattress where the average first-time value is l- closer to lifetime value. Does that make sense? Therefore, what I would expect from you, that average order value, the return on that very first purchase will be different depending on the product. So for the supplement, I actually would have more, I'd be softer on the return of a first-time buyer because I know if I can get someone in the door, the lifetime value is going to make up for it. They're in my funnel now. I can get them with email campaigns. I can get them with organic. They're they're in. I can sell them with the, the legitimacy of the product. Sure. Sure, it's a $15 product that cost me $50 to get them through Brian. But in a year, that customer is not a $15 customer anymore. They're a $500 customer. Therefore, yeah, my day one ROAS, garbage in the trash can. But my one year ROAS is 10X. So it depends on the brand. So that's what I would consider is average order value versus lifetime value when considering the return you're expecting from influencers, from partners, et cetera. However, there are probably some like just benchmark gut checks, you know, that it's good or bad. I would recommend trying to aim for as a goal, your ROAS is between four to 10 for an influencer partner, right? That's getting you, uh, but again, it's that's that compared to lifetime value, um, or establish what that's compared to. If it's one year value, if it's six months of value, if it's the first purchase, four to ten is you know you're succeeding. I would consider any brand that could do that succeeding um, and doing extremely well. Not that under that you're failing. It's just you're you're definitely succeeding if you got a four to ten ROAS. Okay, so and for those not in the know, what what is ROAS? How do you yeah yeah return on your ad spend? Um, And there's different ways to define exactly ROAS or maybe you call it MER, you know, um, if you spend a hundred dollars, how much money are you making in revenue, gross revenue, not in profit from that, right? So if I pay Brian a hundred dollars and then a hundred dollars of 
revenue comes through his link or his code or associated through UTM parameters, that would be a one-to-one ROAS versus I spend $100 on Brian and I get $400, that'd be a four-to-one. That would be succeeding. Okay, so you, and so the parameters that you said are four to 10? Yeah, look, it's... It's not a perfect science. Like I said, I feel comfortable saying four to 10 would be succeeding. It would be difficult to argue that anything less than a, anything lower than a, sorry, that a four is failing would be really difficult to justify for a majority of businesses. Um, versus you could, you could argue, for example, that like a two ROAS, even if you're doubling the amount I'm giving you is actually a loss for me, depending on the brand, depending on the business. It, it, a lot of, it would depend. Um, but I, I'm very comfortable saying four to 10 for 99%, 95% of companies that would be succeeding. And why is a two a loss? So if, if, if four, if a hundred dollars spent and a hundred dollar earned is a one-to-one, it's a wash, you're getting, uh, you're not getting revenue value, but you're getting exposure value, right? Your the, the awareness is increased, but even if it's, uh, two, two to one, like if your ROAS is two, aren't you then, didn't you just profit basically a hundred percent? Well, you're talking about profit. I'm talking about gross revenue, which is not profit, right? So let's say my profit margin is super, super small, right? A two ROAS hits a lot softer than I'm selling candy where I make 60% margin, you know, profit margin. Two to one row hits, hits really hard. It's amazing. And then there's, look, there's, there's real cash value to cash in today. Uh, I could be spending two to one on you versus I could be spending three to one, four to one anywhere else, but I have a limited amount of cash, right? So two to one might be okay. Sure. I'm not failing, but I, but isn't the, I could be doing better somewhere else. And that is failing, right? Like, you know what I mean? Uh, I wouldn't be going bankrupt. Um, but depending on economies of scale, depending on profit margin, you, you may not be profitable, even if it seems like a two to one ROAS. And then how do you find these, these winning channels is just testing. Uh, again, are you uh, from the perspective of an, of an influencer of a brand um, side? Yeah. If, you know, of course I want to maximize uh, the opportunity. You know, I want to spend money smart. I want the best return for my money, but I don't know. And it's cause it's not intuitive, right? Like you would think, all right, well let's go right to Instagram because that's the cash cow, but maybe no. I, I would say it totally depends on the brand. So let's give an example of like, I'm a plumber, right? I got a plumbing business, family plumbing business. The way you'd promote that brand, the first platform you go to is definitely not the same if I'm selling Brian Elliott's subscri- like subscription, right? Or even supplement. Um, the, the, the platform serves the creative, right? And the creative serves the strategy. So for a plumber, where the majority of people that I need are not people that are on Instagram or Facebook, you know, uh, they're people Googling plumber near me, right? Um, arguably, we're talking performance marketing right now, not brand marketing per se, right? Kind of two separate beasts, but from a direct attribution ROAS type performance marketing perspective, I would start first if I was a plumber on search-based platforms, whether that's through Google, through Bing, through a DSP, right? Through a, where I'm serving display ads or certain uh, ads on plumber equipment sites, or, you know, they're very specific to the category. That's probably where I'd start. Um, But if I was a new and up and coming supplement brand, and I knew my audience when they're shopping for supplements um, are on Instagram or on Facebook, 
um, or on YouTube, that's kind of where I would start. I, for me, it's about starting uh, with a foundation that's close to the bottom of the funnel. Again, it's all about amplifying, right? So you've got this organic, people are searching for your brand. How do you amplify that? Google, Bing, do a great job at amplifying that by promoting your to the top of the page search results. That's a promotion, right? Or I do really well on Amazon, but I only sell 100K a month. How do I get to 200K, 500K? I would start promoting on Amazon. Amazon's got a fantastic advertiser network. Start promoting your products on Amazon a little bit, right? Amplify. But then oftentimes you're going to hit a plateau. You're going to hit your scalability. When all of a sudden the, the, the challenge evolves from awareness. It's no longer an awareness problem. It then evolves to a perception problem, right? Or it becomes um, an education problem. Yes, it's I'm number one on Amazon every day, but nobody knows what my product is or nobody uh, recognizes my brand or trusts my brand. You then have to go and do other things on other channels to solve those problems. If that makes any sense. It does. I was just thinking about this article I saw in Wall Street Journal. Did you hear about this? Uh, Google's, it's a, the headline is Google's in hot water. Uh, Billions at stake as YouTube ads found to violate terms of service. So the subhead is uh, the Wall Street Journal reports that 80% of YouTube ads violate terms of service, potentially costing Google billions in refunds. Did you hear about this at all? No, actually I haven't. What's the, what's the skinny? Yeah, let me just read you like the highlight of this article. It says, new findings reported by the Wall Street Journal reveal that approximately 80% of the ads YouTube serves across the web have breached its own terms of service, making them subject to refunds. This could cost Google billions, uh, blah, 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 blah. And it says, uh, advertisers pay YouTube to display their ads in the platform before or after videos, obviously. However, according to research by Adlytics, about half of those ads are not actually shown on YouTube. YouTube also shows ads on other websites and mobile apps through its Google, yeah, Google Video Partners program. Uh, Google claims that these third-party sites provide the same ad experience as YouTube with audio-enabled, fully visible ads that can be skipped. However, Adlytics found that the ads on these partner sites are muted 80% of the time and autoplay is off uh, to the side of the screen and can't be skipped. In other words, the ad... Uh, advertisers pay YouTube to display are not receiving the exposure or the same experience YouTube promises. Boom. So there's, you know, the, more of these sort of um, imperfections that you talked about. It's like best laid plans. Uh, whether you do it, you know, through a podcast or you do it through an ad network, it's like, there's always these. Problems existed forever. Think about this in terms of like, you're doing a traditional television buy and I buy, I put ads on CNN and what they tell me is that they're going to serve my ad three times a day. What they don't tell me is that it's three times in a row at 1.40 a.m. in Nebraska. You know what I mean? And then, and if they choose not to tell you, then that's that. They just didn't tell you. Like, no, I don't tell you. That didn't work, you know? Um, these problems have existed forever. Obviously, these platforms are incentivized to provide better service and the best service possible. There's a healthy relationship of transparency and lack of. Um, but I think Meta has the same issue. Meta... Uh, issue or advantage. Meta's got a great network outside of Facebook and Instagram where they can serve ads um, off the platform called the you know, the audience network. There's no transparency really on where those ads are served or how, or we assume they look the same, but um, you can at least, if you're a buyer, you can see what percentage of the inventory is served where most times. So like on YouTube, you, you can go in and dig in and see what percentage of the traffic is actually on 
the desktop YouTube or it's on a television YouTube app or it's on the phone in a mobile app or just mobile browser or a part of the network. Um, but there are limitations to there are limitations. Um, and I could get more into detail, but from a buying perspective, we are being incentivized by the platforms to allow platforms free reign. They, they will throttle CPM costs and incentivize uh, users or buyers who are less specific for the placements they choose. Facebook says this outright. They encourage you to use automatic placements versus manual placements, um, meaning you, you relinquish control of I want to serve video format only versus 10, like a square format video or image. Um, you relinquish that control, allow Facebook to, you're incentivized to allow them to cut it or to crop it or to change it, to serve it on a wider variety of, of placements. Hey, what do you think about uh, voice? Is Voice was such a hype, you know, like Alexa and all this stuff. Do you, is this, it feels like it's dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, everyone's like, oh, you, you need to have a Google, uh, a voice presence somewhere, either on Amazon or Google. And it's like, and I keep getting these robo calls too. Like, hey, I noticed that your business doesn't have a presence on voice, blah, blah, blah. Should I be paying attention to that? I'm a big voice user. Um, okay. I love it. I, But I think there's a lot of things to talk about here. <laughs> Where uh, are you using it? Are you like uh, a Siri or... Are you Alexa or I'm say I'd say I'm probably oh, my ecosystem's a bit split. So I use Siri on my phone um often. Like when I FaceTime you, for example, like last night we were hanging out, I told Siri, I held the hold button, hey, FaceTime dad. I don't want to go through the interface and just FaceTime dad, right? Or like, you know, uh text so and so or like hey, call so and so. I I use Siri for that reason. And there's that's just me personally. Alexa, I use her her. <laughs> I use it uh, for music, mostly in the house, right? So I've got a connected ecosystem. What do I think about it? I think that it has become, <clears throat> pardon me, less shiny uh, for cutting edge. Um, I think AI is the new shiny um, where, you know, Web3 was the shiny two years ago. Um, I, blockchain was the shiny, you know, before that. And there's new shiny things. Do you remember when I, when I um, texted you, like, was it like, November of this last year? When, when did I text you? I was like, Austin, you got to check this out. I think it's the future. Do you remember that text? I 100% do. And I probably can pull it up. You're like, yeah, you're basically like, dude, you've got to check out. It was some AI. Chat GBT or uh, no, I was actually like the, uh, well, it was chat GBT, but it was also the photo um, AI thing. Yeah. That you use for your profile picture too. And a lot of people did. It became super trendy. Yeah. You were honestly, and I'll give you credit where credit's due. Like you were three to six months ahead of like, of just identifying that as like, this is crazy. Check this out. Um, but anyway, back to voice. I think it's not shiny, but I still think it's super, super useful. And I think it's going to be part of our ecosystem going forward. Um, the, the consumer ecosystem. I think it's super relevant um, and valuable. I think there's a lot of negative perception to battle and wade through now, um, specifically for Amazon, but for the rest of them, nobody wants to be listened to. Nobody wants to be monitored. But at the same time, you're, a lot of industries deal with that with with home cameras, home security, our phones. Everyone's kind of dealing with it. Uh, it's not them specifically, but let's set the record straight. It, is your phone listening to you? One hundred percent. Yeah, if you have the mic, if you have it turned on, right? No, uh, at all times. You think so? Because there's a, a setting that you can turn it off, right? I'm not buying it for a moment. If a mic exists, it is bringing in data. 
Uh, and this again, I'm a little bit skeptical, but but let me go back to from a buyer's perspective. And this is surprising to some people. It's <clears throat> there are lots of ways to target people on those platforms. It's becoming less and less possible. They're actually because of privacy laws and things becoming more and more strict. <clears throat> but you hear all the time, and this is anecdotal, true. But I was talking about X, DoorDash, whatever. I was at a bar, wherever, away from my house. All of a sudden, the friend I was with at the table starts getting ads for whatever brand. That has happened enough times where I think everyone's like, yes, it's listening to us. Now, oftentimes it's the app is, in, you chose to install the app on your phone. You agree to the terms of the app. The app is on your phone. Then it's, yeah, it's going to use your mic, even if it's not in app. Right. Um, I, I do. I did that to you with your mother. I was like, go to her phone, tennis racket, tennis racket, tennis racket. <laughs> like, cause I want her to give me a tennis racket for my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> there are some companies that are very open about like, yeah, we do collect your information. It's like Facebook's one of those, right? If you've got the app open, you, you, you are well aware that they're using your microphone and your camera. Um, or they can, you've given them permission to, um, so if it's just minimized, like most of us use an iPhone, this is me, I'll swipe up and move to something else. The app stays open in the background, but it's in the background and therefore could pick up whatever it wants to look. I'm not a doomsdayer. This doesn't, this doesn't like make me want to throw my phone in the garbage or anything. I've just accepted it and I'm moving on. Um, but honestly, it's also because I feel like I'm also being raised at a time and I'm 30 in 2023 where I'm under no disillusion that like the government's not listening to me through whatever it can, you know, like I, I I'm not fear mongering anybody, right. Or want to, or I'm not like a skit, you know, schizophrenic where, where I, I feel like I'm imagining. I just, I acknowledge that if the government wanted to track my voice, track my image 24 seven, they absolutely could. And if the government can, then so can meta and so could Google and so could Amazon. So could uh, Apple, who owns my phone, right? It's on me all the time, every day. But it doesn't, it, yeah, again, it doesn't put me off. And coming back to voice, I think it's just a little bit less shiny right now. I think it's increasingly utilitarian in the future of AI. We just heard about AI voice this last week. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard much about that, but its ability, it's getting incredibly uncanny at the ability to mimic with near perfection the audio of people. And it's, it's, get, it's just going to get better. Um so voice is a natural part of that. The ability to interpret voice and translate that into action um, and translate that into anticipation for action is super valuable. Have you seen the deep fakes like with the fake Tom Cruise and all that? Have you seen that guy? Go. Yeah. You, I love that guy on TikTok. And, and you know, I think he's, that's amazing. I actually studied, I, I did a little bit of research on deep fakes back in 2000 and, um 2017 was working for a nonprofit that's that uh, was promoting media literacy in America and deep fakes was one of those part of being media literate like understanding that just because a video exists and you watched it doesn't mean it's real right um i think at the heart of it and i could talk for days about media literacy but at the end of the day the way ai is going the way content's going i'm embracing it i love it i'm excited for it but what i think is super important for young people and for everyone is to be literate, uh, understand what's possible, uh, with video, understand the framing of, uh, how content is given to you, right. The, the, maybe the incentives of certain content 
um, what they're trying to get out of you. And as long as you acknowledge the framing, who it's made by, who it's coming from, you'll better be able to kind of see the world as it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited about AI. Um, I was just looking up this article that I saw in the Hollywood reporter, you know, the South park guys, um, these guys came up, you know, it's sort of off the heels of the Kendrick Lamar video. I don't know if you saw it like last year called sassy justice. It's like this series, but like, so Trey Parker, Matt stone basically developed this new deep fake business. Have you heard about it? I haven't. And actually it's funny. I independently just watched and followed their story about their, um, they've brought this restaurant back to life in Colorado. So they've been on my feed for that. And I love that story. They're just, they're sinking tons of money into it, but I, I love it. They're passionate about it. Um, anyway, sorry. I haven't heard about this AI stuff. It's called deep voodoo. They raised like $20 million. Uh, it says deep voodoo raised $20 million in a new funding round led by connect ventures, a joint partnership with CAA and VC firm, new enterprise associates. But basically it's this whole fake Tom Cruise idea. But if you think about the possibilities of AI, you know, like, uh, one of our production company, uh, clients, it happens to be a Japanese native and she lives in Japan. She also has a Netflix special. And so it's not super easy for her to get over to the U S to shoot commercial or, you know, be in a spot. And she's done a lot of partnerships with different uh, retailers and stuff. And we started thinking about this deep fake technology where we could basically get a body double that looks just like her and using the AI technology, basically make it look and feel exactly like it's her. And she doesn't have to move an inch. Like she could stay put. What was the name of those guys that, that really got much deserved publicity for this, for doing their anime short first with AI? Remember that like anime combat scene they created? It was fantastic. And then they just recreated one with like an alien movie. Um, you know what the guys I'm talking about though? Like these small individual content creators kind of pioneered this uh, with AI where you have a subject that, that gets overlaid. Um, I don't remember that. Mid journey now is, you know, all the zoom in features and all the cools. Have you played with mid journey at all? I haven't personally played with it. No, it's amazing. I think this is maybe the next emerging opportunity. Like, you know, a lot of people are saying, Hey, if you were, if you were into coding or you're thinking about, you know, computer science shift to AI, cause this is where the opportunities are. But I think just generally, uh, whether you're a brand strategist or you're a writer, director, producer with a video production company, you need to get AI literate because it's not going to just be in one category. It's going to be something like the chat GPTs where you need to understand how to be good at prompting. So that's a bit of copywriting, but it's a bit of prompt knowledge. Or if you need an image, like for me, I can see using mid journey and some of these others uh, for like storyboarding. Because in the past, I needed to like hire an animator or I needed to like find all these images all over the internet. But now it's like, I can just basically create a storyboard. I think there's AI storyboarding. Like you just tell it what, what you want. In fact, taken to the next level, Adobe released Firefly. Have you heard about this? So in the Adobe suite, it, you know, it's basically going to create vi the video that you explained. So you're like man walking to the shore. Yeah. And, and it will kind of create your B-roll. So it's like, you've got your A-roll already shot. And then you just need some B-roll coverage. Like, hey, I need a an aerial video of a winery uh, in Napa Valley. And it will create, you know, 10 seconds of B-roll for you. That's game changer for me. 
Yeah, I, I kind of view it, I mean, a couple of different takes on AI in general, but I definitely view it as just another tool in the tool belt of, of good marketers, right? <clears throat> Leveraged at large scales, large agencies, large brands can be large, like can be more sophisticated, right? You've got cool partner brands that are doing amazing things with AI, but then even bootstrapping self-marketers who are promoting their own brands or their own products could use it to um, kind of solve some manpower issues or solve some overhead issues and, and cut, co- cut costs. Um I view it as like similar innovations in pick a software, whether that's, you know, Photoshop or uh, Excel, even these just things that take what used to be time intensive or dollar intensive activities, make them extremely fast uh, and easy. Now, I think there's lots of problems to be solved still in the space. Like I'm not sure how much of the writer's guild of America strike you've been following. Um, But one of their, one of their main picketing, one of the main things on the picket lines is talking about AI. Uh, in the production process, and they're picketing uh, basically for fairness uh, of use. Um, you know what? What can AI be used for and not used for um, in in Hollywood and and across the Writers Guild of America? Uh, they're obviously very concerned uh, that it is damaging not just to their jobs but to the industry uh, if misused. So I think, and I I, I agree. I feel like uh, there needs to be some understanding about where its strengths lie, where we, where we, where it's best used and then where, and acknowledge some places where um, it is inappropriately used or it's detrimental to the art or creativity community. These, these uh, disciplines um, that would, would ultimately be, be detrimental. Like I, I think right now our first generation of AI is largely relying on plagiarism. And I don't think anyone's uh, arguing that too much. It, it, scraped the internet right with or without people's consent and is and is learned without from people's art from people's writing just because you publish on the internet doesn't mean you are allowing it to be used it's almost this unwritten contract right it's to me it's largely plagiarism um not to say it's bad i guess i think it's largely productive i think it's exciting and cool but acknowledging that it it's not uh it's not creating anything new it's just creating things that have been created before. Right. Right. I almost think whenever there's like extreme technology, and I think we're at the forefront, we don't even know what's happening, but it feels very familiar to like 1997 when I was sitting in our garage, you know, in one of our first houses, like in Irvine, uh, waiting for the internet to load one frame at a time with dial up. And then, you know, you get better bandwidth and things change or social comes on the scene. There's it's obviously something big is happening, but I also think at the same time, there could also be this like counter movement. What's that? Like uh, Newton's law for every action. There's an opposite and equal reaction. There could be like this desire to go back to even older school. So like, you know, I'm, I'm seeing occasionally uh, like Gen Z and, Gen, what's the gen below that? Gen A beats me. They're all they're all zoom they're all zoomers to me right now. Yeah, with flip phones, basically, you know, going opposite of technology, going old school. So maybe there's going to be something like that, um, in the the writing category. Like, yeah, ChatGPT can write you a script in thirty seconds, but like, yeah, and maybe it'll get good, but like there might be something of higher value if like it's tagged 
or it's stamped like this is robot made or AI made or this is human made. And then there's a, such a higher value on the human, the humanity of it because because of the human limitations and flaws. I don't know. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. And for one reason or another, I mean, the, the resurgence of records for being a more authentic version of like the recording and the sound versus like l low fidelity of streaming, right? Like everyone uses low fidelity stream, but like high quality on a record, right? I'll be able to go for that. Or I think you even brought it up maybe like a long time, like five, 10 years ago. You're like, I bet people are going to start trying to escape technology to go out and just live in the woods or camp or like go on these retreats where they'll pay thousands of dollars to just live simply no internet. Yeah. Farm, go, go farm for a month. And that is the luxury retreat. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, and it's, I think it's a fun social phenomenon, but one thing that kind of bouncing off your, the tagging thing, I watched a really great video, um, this week on, on YouTube that, uh, and again, if I knew the creator's name, I'm so sorry. I want to credit this guy. Um, I'll, I'll try and follow up with the, with the creator so you can, you can tag it in here. Um, but created a video about the reality of virtual kitchens, uh, and the rise of virtual kitchens over the pandemic. And yeah, a ghost kitchen, if you will. Yeah. Sorry, not a virtual kitchen, a ghost kitchen. So what, what it means is like you go on DoorDash, right? You see a hundred restaurants you didn't know that like 50 to 70 of those restaurants that you're seeing are actually all one kitchen in a warehouse downtown. They're made up brands. You could buy the fried chicken burger with pepper Jack from Bob's burgers or from Paula's salad kitchen. And it's literally the same burger made by the same kitchen in a warehouse. So the, the lack of transparency there and a lot of brands have taken advantage of this, right? So for example, uh, Chuck E. Cheese of all brands opened up a ghost kitchen where they sold Chuck E. Cheese pizza under a mom and pop sounding name, like Marco, like it was like, uh, it's like Marco's or Jesse's or something. And everyone, again, if you're using DoorDash, you're like, yeah, I want mom and pop. Let's support. I've never heard of this. Let me, maybe it's unique. You're literally buying Chuck E. Cheese pizza. Like it, they don't know. And there's no, nobody tells them. Uh, and the same is true for these ghost kitchens, right? Take Mr. Beast, right? Mr. Beast opened 300 locations of his restaurant that he promoted with his big YouTube video, but there's not a single standing Mr. Beast restaurant. You can't go into one. It's just made by some other warehouse that makes, it could be, and you may think two, three, four other restaurants. No, like, especially in LA, it can be 40, 70 restaurants out of one kitchen, the same kitchen that makes pad thai can make you wings um what i and what i like from the video and kind of bring it back to ai what you're saying is this guy called for an improvement that would say i want to know if my food is being made out of a ghost kitchen or if this is a legitimate establishment if this is a a place a mom and pop restaurant versus a ghost kitchen or you know food coming from chuck e cheese i i want to know because i have the right to know and he did this cool yeah I want to link you the YouTube video. Cause again, I feel really bad crediting. Um, we'll find it. Yes. So his name is Eddie Burback. You have Eddie Burback. He's a big YouTube creator. Um, this video has 6.1 million views. It's called the deceptive world of ghost kitchens. Three months ago has 6.1 million views. Um, a great video. Yeah. I encourage you to watch it. And, and, uh, but he goes into this similar thing.
about labeling and the need for this kind of like authenticity. Help me understand what's real. You know, what am I, I am I getting what I'm expecting to get, you know, versus being deceived. Well, it, I, now I'm, now I'm thinking like ready, ready player one stuff, like um, as good as AI is going to get, you know, meeting people online, it's going to be like, Hey, are you who you say you are? <laughs> like, how do we authenticate? Unfortunately, I mean, that's already all over the place on Tinder and, and Bumble, right? Like guys, unfortunately, guys have to deal with it all the time. Like, is this, is this really hot profile? Why would they like me back? Like, this has got to be a bot. Right? Uh, these guys are saying they're uh, six feet two and then they show up to the date. And they're like five, three. Yeah. Yeah. Catfishing is different than botting, but yeah, a similar problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's got to be some sort of... Uh, yeah, that's going to be a thing if it's not already a thing right now. Yeah. And we're, we're seeing the beginnings of it, I think, on Twitter and some other of these platforms um, that are kind of criticized for it a bit. But um, you've seen the Instagram has this as well, the fact checking on Instagram. Right. May or may not be accurate information. Yeah. So there there are there is some progress of like trying to check and balance the, the oncoming just volume of content. Uh, AI generated and and not and trying to decipher what's true or not is going to be a real challenge um, if left unchecked. Um, not that it's a problem; it's just clutter. Let's go back to um, uh, uh, an experience I had with Viore this last week. I was down in Encinitas. I met these guys. Joe Kudla runs the brand, and I had no idea the vibe. But it's like I haven't felt this way about a brand like sort of homegrown local vibe. Um, I haven't felt this since like maybe when Hurley came out in like the mid nineties, I can't remember when that was like mid to late nineties. There's this feeling in like the action sports community, like South orange County, where all these brands are the Volcom, the Quicksilver, the Billabong, the O'Neill, the, you know, the list goes on. And then, uh, Bob Hurley announces, and I was I was working my way through college at the time when he announced that he was leaving uh, Billabong to start this new company called Hurley, and it was just like this amazing feeling. I got the same feeling when I went to Viore. It's special. I can't really put my finger on it, but like it kind of gave me Patagonia vibes. Like Joe is this guy who uh, he's from Washington State originally, but like. Uh, he was an athlete, played uh, lacrosse, played football, got injured, kind of hurt his back, discovered yoga. And now he's like on this journey. And Viore means mountain, by the way. So there's like this whole metaphor. Uh, it's it's mountain in Finnish. Uh, Joe is not Finnish, but like he likes the sentiment of sort of like the ascent. It's very aspirational. But I got the feeling like they're very much on a Patagonia um path and we were talking about this off camera like these archetypes these brand archetypes like one brand will sort of look and feel like another even though it's different and distinct but like totally getting patagonia vibes from them mm -hmm. i think that's really cool yeah and i when i try and th put my finger on what is the essence like what what do you think is that makes it feel unique what what is it that makes it feel hurley-esque is it just the aspiration is it the adventure like what's uh what's making it stand out to you well, first of all, Hurley was like South Orange County born, but it was like authentic surf, right? Like, so that's where they started before they got acquired by Nike. But um, yeah, so part of surf skate culture, like, like, yeah. 
and and super authentic yeah and the fact that bob had sort of run billabong for all those years like he he was the ghost in the machine like he was running it and then jumping over and starting his own thing it was just like this very special like again like a groundswell and uh, there wasn't a ton of advertising that I can remember at the time. It was more like word of mouth. People were talking about it. And then it was sort of like the cool brand to wear very much like what's happening with Viore. Like, you know, you, you want to wear their stuff because the fabric is so buttery and nice. Um, but to know that there's cool people behind it too, is also, and, and that, and that they're in Encinitas. Like if you've ever been to Encinitas, it's like, pulling into like the coolest little surf town, small town feel. There's like, like little clothing shops. There's like little uh, furniture shops. There's like taco stands. And then just over the hill, there's the ocean, you know, and people are getting out of the water wet with swimsuits or on paddleboards, surfboards. There's families down there. It's just really a cool, I don't know. It's just really cool. Yeah. I think well, two pieces to this, my reaction to this, I think one, from like this, the dumb consumer side, right? I, I knew nothing about, I, I know the brand, Viore. I, I love, I have two pairs of shorts. I love them. Instantly, my new, fa like instant favorite. Um, and my perception was, as you said, I had a really great experience with the product. They were gifted to me right by my father-in-law. And uh, I loved the fit, man. Like there's not a lot of uh, brands, especially that make pants or activewear that like, uh, it felt good on the length of my leg. felt good on the waist felt good. Like the inseams just felt really nice. Natural the product spoke for itself and I loved it. I wanted more. Right. So my perception of the brand was just premium from the get go. I had no idea they're Encinitas. I had no idea the cool story about the founder. Um, obviously it's additive, but I think with a brand like Viori, their product speaks for itself. Like you just try it on and you know, it's different that I think that's, what's cool and so unique. Um, especially when I compare it to Patagonia, where I think they had a very similar launch and I think success with their gear, just you put it on and it feels uniquely, or at least it felt uniquely Patagonia, like specifically their, their puffers, if you will, but they've since branched out to a bunch or their under thermals. They're just doing things that felt and fit really great to a certain community. I think Viore is doing the same thing. Um, and so therefore it feels authentic, feels natural to that kind of community. Too. They have 32 retail stores. Now they're going kind of international. They have one in London. I think they're I going to Asia. I've been to the one at the Spectrum. been to the one at the Spectrum. It's cool. Uh, yeah. And and so I asked them about that. It's very interesting. They're also, they have a catalog business. And again, it's like, oh. But just like the way he talks about taking care of people and it being such a like kind of family-run business um, from a small little team. They started like with three people. And by the way, they Joe tried a clothing company before he tried uh, the big launch and it basically failed. And, and he started at Deloitte of all places <laughs> yeah. as like a CPA, a numbers guy. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I, I think, and I think going back to what you first said, when like, I think people do this too, right? Where, where you look up to someone or something and you want to model your life or your business off of something else. And it could be for the success, right? You and I, briefly talked about like everyone's talked about where the uber for this or the uber for that you know mm -hmm. that's been around for 10 years now you know people speaking that way if you're to start and use patagonia whether or not it was intentional as their target i think a lot of businesses whether they're willing to admit it or not yeah. in at, in the, in their deepest heart of hearts they know they have a target like we want a bad be, comp yeah yeah we want to 
we want to be the Apple of this category, or we want to be the Mercedes of this category, or like we want to operate like Google does with its employees or like, Hey, we love. And I think what's great. If you're going to pick anything from Patagonia, picking the authenticity of the gear to the fit and the function of the community that's going to wear it, you're not going to go wrong there. Like that's something they excel at. And I think, you know, if you already took that from that textbook, great lesson to take something that I admire. And this is just personally about Patagonia, just viewing them is the perception of their values. Not to say I'm not exactly sure what their real values are at the executive level, but at least as a lay person that doesn't care that much, it seems like they're very philanthropic. It seems like they are, they take really great care of their employees. It seems like the CEO who runs it will take like responsibility for success or failure of the company, even reducing his own comp if necessary. Yeah. Right. I think the founder's name is Yvonne Chouinard and uh, Yvonne is an American rock climber. So here we are already got a parallel to mountains. Uh, Joe said like he's climbing all the 14,000 plus peaks in the United States. Like he loves the climb, even though it's like torturous for him, he gets altitude sickness. So there's a direct parallel. 14ers in Colorado where I was living not too long ago. Yeah. Uh, so he's like this environmentalist, this philanthropist, this outdoor enthusiast, businessman. Uh, and remember, I think it was Patagonia that announced a few years ago, they're closing shop for Black Friday. Like, they, uh, yeah. they don't want to work. Like, yeah. they're giving employees the day off. I forgot about that. But it's just a great example of their values being manifest in, in reality, right? Like, Yeah, and I think Yvonne like, gives, uh, is giving the whole company away to its that's right that's actually the one that i was most impressed by that's the one is look he's already a multi-millionaire right billion he's just giving it away just giving it away i think that look i don't know if i do the same thing i don't know if i could uh i think it's super admirable though and speaks volumes to his character right where his priorities lie where his priorities must have been lying you know since the foundation of the company um and it's got uh, like the proof is in the pudding, right? It's got to have trickled down um, to the rest of the company. The, the vibe, people catch it. So if you always got the same thing going, good for them. I, I think actions speak the loudest though, right? Like show us, don't tell us. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that, <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from.